people struggle to understand the Northern Irish accent. So as you can imagine, I have to tone it down a little bit. Maybe you're like, this guy sounds Northern Irish, but he's a bit weird sounding. It's because of being in an international setting. But every week, I have to say, Psalm, please turn to Psalm 11. A lot of Americans, they say, who's Sam? Our pastor in the church is called Sam. So they think, turn to Psalm 11. No, turn to Psalm 11. (laughs) It's just a really, really interesting church. Let me pray and ask God to open up our eyes to behold wondrous truths from his word. Then we'll read this psalm together, psalm together, and then uh, we'll uh, uh, explain it a little bit. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for our service thus far. Thank you for your presence uh, here with us. Oh God, thank you for the songs of praise that we can sing uh, to you. Thank you uh, for a testimony of your faithfulness uh, there in Frankfurt. And also, Lord, for your faithfulness represented to many people here in this room. We do pray now, Lord, as we uh, turn to your word, that you would free us from any distractions that may come our way. Help us to focus upon your word. We pray that you may open up our eyes to behold wondrous truths out of your law. And may this this testimony from King David be an encouragement for us for this day, for this week, and as you will, for the remainder of 2024. And we pray all of this in the name of our Saviour. Amen. Psalm 11 is entitled to the choir master of David. So it's a psalm of David. And David begins in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in the heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And lust reads God's word. Amen. Where do you turn when the foundations are destroyed? And this question concerns everyone here today, Christian and non-Christian, man and woman, young and old. Where do you turn when the foundations are destroyed? It's also a question appropriate for the end of the year because for many of us, 2023 was a year of shaken foundations. So ask yourself, where did you turn in 2023 when certain foundations were shaken? And this exact question confronts King David here in Psalm 11. The psalm helpfully splits into two sections which will form the structure of our time together. In verses 1 to 3, we see David's crisis where, where the question is asked to him. And then from verses 4 until the end, we see David's confidence where the question is answered. And since everything in the Bible was written for our instruction, Romans 15, verse 4, these two sections become our crisis 
and our confidence. Notice first our crisis in verses 1 to 3. The opening three verses record the direct speech of King David's advisors. According to verse 1, they, they told the king to, to flee like a bird to his mountain. You see, these advisors, these instructors, like many of our friends, meant well by instructing David to seek safety because of all that was occurring around him. Running away, however, was not the solution for David. At the start of the psalm, David emphatically declares the position that he will take. Look again at verse 1. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. Now, you may be asking why. Why was David told to flee? Why was he instructed to take shelter? Why does he declare that he finds safety in God alone? Well, because according to verse 2, the wicked have their bows bent... Their arrows are fitted and are ready to release that arrow that will surely kill the king. Like a bird, David is vulnerable and is easy prey to the predators waiting in the shadows for him. But again, you may be asking the question, why? Why are the wicked preying on the king? Why are they seeking to kill the one in authority? Because the foundations were destroyed. Read verse 3 with me. The advisors asked David, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, we aren't told the specific situation David faced here. However, there are two likely possibilities. It could have been written at any point in David's life when Saul was pursuing David to take away his life. Or when David was fleeing from his son Absalom's conspiracy. And either way, David was in a crisis and was confronted with a question, should I stay or should I go? And personally, I like that we don't know the exact context behind the psalm because it allows this psalm to be applied to many situations in our life where we face a similar crisis when the foundations are destroyed. Foundations such as societal foundations. That's how the New Living Translation understands the context behind verse 3. It says the foundations of law and order have collapsed. And again, we aren't certain about the particular situation, uh, but throughout King David's life, law and order never really functioned. And that's true throughout our world, isn't it? Societal foundations are are constantly falling apart. I don't need to explain this to you. Just look at the news and you will see country after country where law and order have collapsed. is regarded as right. Pride is celebrated. And human life, whether it's of the unborn or the older person or a refugee, it means nothing to anyone. So the question comes, when societal foundations collapse, What will we, as Christians, do? Or it may be familial foundations. If the context behind this psalm was David's son's conspiracy, then the foundations were David's familial foundations. They were destroyed because his son had rebelled against his father's authority and even slept with his father's concubines. They were, they, they, they were on the ground completely trampled over. 
And perhaps this describes you today. Your familial foundations in 2023 have been damaged, even destroyed, by maybe the death of a family member, by marital unfaithfulness, or even by a major family fallout. So the question comes, what do we as Christians do when familial foundations collapse? Maybe it was personal foundations. The foundations for you of a, of a secure future uh, have, have recently become unstable over the loss of employment, over a bad diagnosis for your kids, over a bad grade at school. When these personal foundations collapse, what can we as Christians do? Maybe it's congregational foundations. Has something happened at church that, that has, has shaken the foundations of the fellowship? Just a couple of months ago, I was preparing to preach this psalm at a church in Germany. I had the sermon prepared, I was ready, and a couple of days beforehand, I heard that the church that I was going to had just entered into a crisis because of marital unfaithfulness in the leadership level. I said, Lord, what do I say in that situation? And yet God providentially had already directed me to preach this text. When congregational foundations collapse, what can we as Christians do. And if I'm honest, my initial thought is to, to obey the advice of those around me. If you're honest, your natural response is to, to bury your head in the sand, isn't it? It seems much easier, doesn't it? Whether it be a literal mountain or an unhealthy habit that offers temporary respite, we tend to first consider running to our own mountain to get out of that situation and flee like a bird to the mountain. But the question must be asked, is that, however, the correct response for a Christian? Well, Psalm 11 reveals that David responded by by trusting God, the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth. You see, instead of fleeing like a bird, David declares that his confidence is in the Lord. Let's notice then our confidence in the crisis. Our confidence in the crisis. In times of trouble, do you take refuge in the Lord alone? easier said than done, isn't it? So we ask King David, why, King David, should we take refuge in the Lord alone? David, why did you express total confidence in God? And David responds to our question in verses 4 until the end with four reasons four reasons why he took refuge in the Lord. He provides us with four reasons why we as Christians can declare our confidence in God during a crisis. Psalm 11 provides us with four reasons why we can resolve to trust God no matter what comes our way in the next year. Reason number one, because of God's position. God's position. 
during a crisis, we can declare our confidence in God because of his position. Ask yourself this question, where is God in my crisis? David tells us in verse 4 that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, the king is still in residence. God has not moved to the mountains and God has not changed his address. He is still in heaven ruling from his throne. A throne symbolizes great power and authority. The fact that God's throne is in heaven shows that God has ultimate power and that he is above the chaos in the universe. God is not influenced by the shaken and destroyed foundations which surround us. Rather, he is consistently reigning from his throne in heaven. Take this phone, for example. If this phone is sitting here and there happens to be an earthquake in Craigavon, what's going to happen to the phone? It's going to fall off to the edge because it's attached to the foundations. But imagine somehow that the phone was suspended above the foundations. When the earthquake comes, the foundations are going to collapse, but the phone's going to remain. And in the same way, God is not influenced by the shaken foundations that happen on earth or in our lives. Why? Because the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You see, David fixed his eyes on on God's current position and not on his present condition. And likewise, when the foundations around us are destroyed, we should look up and declare that God is still on his throne and he is still in control. He always has been and he always will be because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, very often we need a perspective shift in our trials. A reminder that though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, the Lord is still on the throne. Do you remember that incident in Matthew chapter 8 when um, the disciples got into, into the boat with Jesus and this great storm came Matthew uses the word seismos, an earthquake literally threatened the Sea of Galilee that day. And they were so terrified. They, they, they were paralyzed with fear. And they run, these experienced fishermen, run down to a carpenter's son and ask him to do something. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you of little faith. And he said that their faith was weak because they had forgotten his word. Because Jesus had told them in a couple of verses before that, that let us go over to the other side. Mark and Luke make it clear that he says, let's go, we will go to the other side. In other words, if Jesus said they were going to the other side, whatever happened on the Sea of Galilee, they would surely reach the other side. And yet in the storm, their fear was fixated upon the wind and the waves. And they had forgotten what Jesus had said to them. They needed a perspective change. They needed to be reminded that the Lord is still on the throne. And brother or sister in Christ, in 2024, let God's word encourage you to trust God because of his exalted position. And when you don't know where God is in your crisis, remind yourself afresh of his position by reading yet again his word. That's reason number one, to have confidence in the crisis because of God's position. 
Reason number two, God's purpose. During a crisis, we can declare our confidence in God because of his purpose. When trials come, we often feel that, that, uh, that, that God is far away from us and that God is not interested in us. We may even wonder if God really does love us because he has allowed such, such a crisis to come to us. And yet the Bible tells a different story. It tells us that, that God sees our misery, that he hears our cries, and he works all things together for his glory, which ultimately includes the good of those who love him. And David knew these truths and therefore trusted that God had a purpose for his crisis. Read verse 4 with me. David says, God's eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. And that word test does not describe a driving test or, or, or a school test where we, where we pass or where we fail. Instead, it describes the refining test applied to certain metals. Metals such as gold um, were, was, was, is purified through fire. And this image is used throughout the Bible, for example, in Job chapter 23. So if you have your Bible still open, please turn over to Job uh, chapter 23 for a moment. Job 23 verses 8 to 10. Job 23 verses 8 to 10. And while you turn there, let me just remind you of the story of Job. Job was a, was a man, I think we can say, whose, whose foundations were, were completely destroyed. Not even destroyed, completely burnt up. They, they, they no longer existed. He was tested by Satan and experienced intense suffering throughout his life. Job's abundant possessions were robbed and destroyed. His ten children were, were all killed at once in a collapse of a house. Job himself was, was, was struck with loathsome sores. And his friends around him accused him of sinning against God. Even Job's wife, the one who was meant to help him, the one who was meant to support him through the good times and the bad times, she told him to curse God and to die. And then in chapter 23, beginning at verse 8, Job responds to one of his friends with these words. He says, Behold, I go forward, but God is not there. I'm backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when God is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But God knows the way that I take. When God has tried me, tried, same word as Psalm 11, when God has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And this is raw emotion from Job. He couldn't feel God's presence, but he believed that God was there. And Job's feelings were, were subjective, but Job trusted the objective truth that God was working in his terrible situation, that God was using it to purify him like gold. And perhaps this is true of your life today. Your current crisis has, has brought darkness into your life and you really don't know where to turn. You turn to the left side and you don't feel him. You turn to the right side and he's not there. 
And it may be an unexpected situation or it may be a prolonged uh, situation. And whatever it is, your foundations are shaken and all you see is dust around you. Well, to you, God, through his word, declares that you are not alone and that he is working and that he knows the way that you take And friends, one of the most amazing things about that refining process with the metal owner is that the metal owner never lets go. Even though the metal may be in the fire for a very, very long time, he never lets go of the piece of metal. Likewise, if you're a Christian today, someone who has turned from your sin and trusted Jesus alone as your only Savior and only Lord, The Bible says that you're permanently held onto. You're permanently united to God's Son, Jesus Christ. And nothing, not even your trials, can separate you from Christ. Jesus holds you and he will never, ever let you go. He loves you. He keeps you. He is purifying you. So look to him. Turn to him. Don't think about the changing situations around you. Rather, think about this unchanging truth that Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. Declare your confidence in our good God who has a good purpose for what you're experiencing. In the waiting, believe that he is working. In the darkness, look for his light. In the discomfort, embrace his comfort. Trust that God has a purpose for your crisis. That is what gives you confidence in the crisis. That God is working all things together for his glory, which includes your good. Reason number three. Reason number three. God's personality. God's personality. During a crisis, we can declare our confidence in God because of his unchanging personality. Look at the beginning of the last verse in this psalm. David says, For the Lord is righteous. A righteous person is someone who is, who is good and does what is right according to a set standard. And God is entirely good and perfectly does what is right according to his set standard. And this truth filled David with confidence and it should fill us with confidence because since the Lord is righteous... All of his ways are righteous. And you know what? Knowing God's personality, or to use another word, his, uh, uh, to, to study theology, to learn about God, it's intensely practical. For example, his character reminds us that although the trial hurts, and although we may never understand why we have went through what we went through, we can still know that it was meaningful and it was correct because the Lord is righteous. The 19th century Baptist pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said these words, when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. Get that printed and put it on your door for this year. When we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. Can't see what God's doing. No one can give me answers. Bible doesn't give me answers. But we know that God is righteous. And therefore, his ways are good. He is faithful. 
He is working all things together for our good. When you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust God's heart. And knowing God's righteous personality also encourages us to, uh, to, to leave matters in God's hands. David knows that God is righteous and therefore will not allow evil to go unpunished. That's why David in verse 6 asks God to judge the wicked. David doesn't go after them himself. Rather, he trusts that, that, that God will avenge his people because it is in his very character to do so. And what a challenge this is to our attitude, and in particular our Northern Irish attitude, to go after people and try and get it sorted ourselves. Let's learn from the example of David that vengeance is not ours, it is the Lord's. So we can leave it in his hands. David says in verse 6, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The phrase, the portion of their cup, simply means that they will get what they deserve. And this cup, and and we're, we're, we're given this picture that this cup is full of fire and sulfur and scorching wind. The fire and sulfur remind us of God's righteous judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. And the scorching wind is a, it's a, it's a deadly hot wind that blows across the desert. All three images describe God's righteous wrath, which is reserved for the wicked. God's just judgment. And God's just judgment should cause us as Christians to place our confidence in the righteous Lord alone because it reminds us that he is the one who fights for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? And on the other hand, if you're not a Christian today, God's righteous judgment should terrify you because of your unrighteousness. You see, we often think of the wicked as, as the rapists and the murderers. And yet across the Psalms, the term often describes those who arrogantly deny God's existence, both in word and in deed. And elsewhere in the Bible, God describes every human as a wicked sinner, that we have all broken God's commands and that we have all displeased him. You see, we naturally hate God, we, uh, we, we naturally disobey God, and we give other things God's rightful place in our lives. We all, by nature, stand under God's judgment. We are unrighteous before the righteous Lord and therefore we all deserve God's just judgment described here in verse 6. But that's only half of the story of the Bible. It's all true, but it's only half of the story because the Bible also describes how this righteous God in love made a way for all righteous people to appear righteous before him. In the Old Testament, God set up uh, different sacrifices for sin, which ultimately pointed towards the final sacrifice of his only son, Jesus. Jesus Christ took on flesh and lived among us. That's the Christmas story that we've been hearing about. And in thought, word, and in deed, Jesus obeyed God perfectly and pleased him consistently. 
Jesus is then crucified um, on a Roman cross for the sins of his people. And on the cross, Jesus absorbed the cup of God's wrath described in verse 6 for all who would trust in him. And the story doesn't end there, though, because God accepted Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice of his son and demonstrated this by raising him from the dead, triumphant, three days later. And that's the Easter story. You see, Christmas can never be separated from Easter. The Christmas story points to the Easter story. And through faith in Jesus alone, the Bible says that unrighteous sinners are declared righteous before a righteous God. How is that that possible, you ask? Well, through faith. Through faith, sinners confess their sin to God. And their sin is then transferred to Jesus on the cross. And also through faith, sinners receive Jesus' righteousness. It's the great swap of the gospel. The gospel swap. Through faith, our sin is transferred to him on the cross. And through faith, his righteousness is transferred to us. So that we are justified, declared righteous in the sight of a righteous God. It's simply amazing. And that's the gospel. And if you're not a Christian today, someone who has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith, you can receive forgiveness of your sins today by trusting Jesus alone as your Savior. Simply confess that you have sinned against Almighty God. Admit that you need forgiveness of sins and believe in Jesus, the Savior of the world. What a way to enter into the new year. Enter into the new year by, by, by putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ. Friends, God's personality causes both dread and delight depending on your relationship with God's Son. So let me ask you, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? God's righteous son. Reason number four. The final reason. God's promise. David declares his confidence in God because of God's position, because of God's purpose, and because of God's personality. He is building, building, and building Then, at the end of the final verse, David declares his confidence in God because of God's promise. David says, the righteous shall behold his face. To behold someone's face is is to look directly at them and to be in their presence. You've heard from Mary, how Mary's German and Northern Irish, we we met in Africa of all places. We did a long-distance relationship for four years in, in the midst of COVID as well. And we, we saw each other every night on the screen. I could see her face. But the only moment I beheld her face was the, in the airport when we were physically present with one another. And that's what David is getting at here at the end of verse 7. For David to say that the righteous shall behold, no, 
or they that the righteous shall behold God's face means that they will one day be in the presence of God and see him face to face through Jesus. And that's our great hope. That's our great certainty as Christians that one day, one day we will hold, uh, behold God's face. And on that day, we will dwell safely with him forever. And please notice again, though, that it is only the righteous who are given this promise. To be with Jesus in the next life, you must belong to him in this life. And if you belong and and you belong to Jesus now by, by, by turning from your sin and trusting in him alone. Again, if you're not a Christian today, come to Jesus and receive his promise. Come to Jesus and receive eternal security. God is clear in his word that you only have life if you have the Son of God. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Don't put this decision because you don't know what the next hours bring, repent today of your sins and believe in Jesus today. Then and only then can you be certain that one day you will behold his face through Jesus. And for those who have trusted Jesus as their only Savior and Lord, is this not another reason for us to trust God when the foundations are destroyed? Is this not another reason for us to to remain faithful and to persevere in the faith? Is this not hope in our hopeless world? The reminder that this world is not our home. We are only passing through. David calls upon us as Christians at the beginning of the year to readjust our perspective, to look up, to get up, and to march on Because the one who conquers will gain eternal life. And I'm not a prophet. I don't know what will happen in 2024. Don't know what will happen in the global scale. Don't know what will happen here to you as a congregation. And I don't know what will happen in your life personally in 2024. But I do know with certainty from God's word, that these four truths will give you confidence whatever comes your way. They will help all of us to declare, in the Lord I take refuge. So let me close by rephrasing the question of David's advisors in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed in 2024, what will you the righteous do? Will you flee like a bird? Or will you stand strong in the Lord? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can take refuge in the Lord because the Lord alone is our confidence in the crisis. So let us resolve at the beginning of this new year to look up to the righteous Lord sitting on his throne in heaven. For today we purposely suffer knowing that tomorrow we shall behold his face. Amen.